0: Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. The op-ed columnist's answer to the election of Donald Trump and Brexit is shopworn by now. There's just too much democracy. These stupid racist deplorables are running amok. And those of us who live in the blue states should just recede already. We didn't have these damn populists like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders screwing things up. We'd be at brunch already. Like much of modern punditry, these punchy, ready-to-go-viral-on-Twitter-takes don't really get at the heart of the issue, and, crucially, they confuse demagoguery with populism. As Thomas Frank writes in the cover story for the May issue, the disdain for hayseeds and deplorables who fall prey to populist politicians stretches back to the word's origins in the 1890s. In uncovering the history of anti-populism and the true aims of the original populists, Frank gets to the heart of America's deep-seated suspicion of the p-word. I was joined by Frank to discuss the long, fascinating history of smears against populism and how the left can find a way forward after the suspension of Bernie Sanders' campaign and amid a devastating epidemic. Populism has been a career-long interest of yours, and it was among the first things you researched at the University of Chicago while you were a grad student. So could you talk about the social conditions that led to populism in the Midwest and why the movement was more prevalent in some states rather than others?
1: Wow. Well, that's a big question. Um... <laughs> I've got a lot of feedback since the Harper's uh, article came out. And one of the sort of persistent themes is that people didn't know, had never heard of populism. Wow. (laughs) Did not know it had existed and had just thought that the word was this generic term for demagogues. Mm-hmm. Particularly, you know, racist demagogues. So that was that was that was really interesting to me. I mean, when I started studying it, of course, a long time ago, American populism, like Midwestern populism, was the was the number one definition of the word. Mm-hmm. But it it's uh, it's largely been forgotten.
0: What do you think that is? Is it a concerted effort, or is it just a failing of the? Public school system, a little bit of both.
1: Oh, (laughs) who the hell knows? There's (laughs) been, I mean, we'll probably get get into this a little bit, but there's been obviously a huge change in academia. Mm. And uh, it it was never, you know, populism was, was never really like taught in, I mean, it would come up in like high school history class mainly uh, as a kind of background to the election of 1896 and William Jennings Bryan and mm-hmm. and that stuff but that was that was pretty much it and since then the word has it, through a long and winding and actually very interesting process that I try to trace in this this book of mine that's coming out one of these days <laughs> You know, it's delayed by the coronavirus. I don't know if you heard. Yeah. 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 Anyhow, it's uh, the words definition changed over the years, the way it was used and the way it was abused. And what you you basically had happen was there was a, a school of of uh, intellectuals in the 1950s who basically took populism as the ultimate example of the danger of mass protest movements. And by, it was very convenient for them because by that point, everybody associated with populism had died. You know, it was, (laughs) it was large, largely forgotten already, that sort of thing. And so they were able to do this. It was a, uh, well, it was, um, it was wrong. Let's just be real uh, blunt about it. Mm -hmm. Their interpretation of populism is it's, it's notorious for how distorted their interpretation was what's fascinating though, is that interpretation really caught something in the public mind, so the book that redefined populism in this way as a movement of like uh, racist and anti semitic demagogues that book won the pulitzer prize uh It was a couple decades ago someone's a famous historian said that it was the most I'm going to get the quote wrong of course but one of the most influential works of American history of all time uh the author of that book Richard Hofstadter went on to become the you know one of the great intellectuals of that period of what we call the consensus era and his uh his reinterpretation of it conquered the world now within 10 years his fellow historians had utterly refuted his take on populism i mean crushingly it's it's a famous episode actually but weirdly that didn't stop the sort of transition of the word from this reference to a particular american reform movement to a you know a generic term for uh, the demagogic tendency of all mass protest movements uh, which is where we are now so now you have a whole academic discipline <clears throat> that calls itself populism studies it's largely based in Europe, but it has a lot of practitioners here in America. I think I quoted some of them in the Harper's article, and I quote even more of them in the <laughs> book. And they are in they are in full voice these days. Uh, they they are how do, how, do, how should I put this as sort of the toast of organized intellectual life. You know, they tour the world giving lectures at prestigious foundations and conferences. Um, you know they have academic projects set up to trumpet their findings and it's the whole discipline is basically a monument to this scholarly error of the 1950s mm. i mean it it arises directly from this very famous scholarly mistake Weirdly, though, it never acknowledges that. I guess that's not weird, would you, if, if you were them, right? <laughs> They never acknowledge this. They never talk about it. You know, it never comes up somehow. The name Richard Hofstadter is rarely uttered anymore.
0: Well, his his book, or excuse me, his famous article, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, is always among the most popular reads on the Harper's website, I must say.
1: Yes, and look, uh, you know, as, long as we started off, you were asking me about myself in graduate school. I used to be a big admirer of Richard Hofstadter, and mm. it's, I still am. I still am in some ways. Uh, I mean, he's the most eloquent writer in the, uh, that the historical profession has ever produced, probably. And he had he, the man had amazing insights. You know, he came up with things that nobody else could see. Unfortunately, a lot of them were wrong, mm. and. Uh, his uh his overall impact the the effects that he has had on future you know generations he, uh, have been really negative, in my opinion. But I, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to be too harsh on Richard Hofstadter because there's a lot of stuff that he did that I really enjoy. Th- look, there's no doubt that there is a paranoid style in American life. Yes, that is true. Yes, facts. <laughs> you know, <It laughs> yes. is. yeah, and and that's a, that's a brilliant insight. You know, the the mistake was in attributing it to to populism. He, by the way, he had a lifelong vendetta against populism. It's very curious. You go back and read his books, he kept coming back to the subject. Even after he got you know so badly burned in the 1950s, he wouldn't let it go um, hmm. and ke- kept coming after them until well, right up until the end of his life.
0: So in your book, Listen, Liberal, you argue that professionals, people who have a college degree, are their own class and therefore have their own class interests. And Worryingly, those professionals who have degrees from prestigious universities are considered worthy of their wealth and their position in society, and that means that they can mess up as many times as they want without repercussions. You cite Larry Summers as a prime example of this. The professional managerial class are clearly those who are the most concerned with what is deemed populism by the media. So so right,
1: it's it's their term, right? Yes, yes. Uh, By the way, I I I don't want to quibble too much with what you said, but it's it's generally people with advanced degrees who are who make up the core of the you know the professional class. But they regard a college education as obviously the most important thing in the world, and Mm -hmm. and the and the higher the hierarchy of universities, you know, which one is better than which one right that it, it, to you know to a lot of us that's a big joke but to them that's really 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 meaningful <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yes, <laughs> um, and yes, and and these are the people who, by and large, use the word populism in this negative, in this pejorative way, and that 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 comes from Hofstadter. So, if you go back and read, it wasn't. By the way, it wasn't just Hofstadter. In some ways, Hofstadter was the least bad of the nineteen fifties consensus generation of writing about populism because Hofstadter actually knew what it was and he had actually studied it and he knew who the leaders were and he had read their books, etc. Whereas other people like Daniel Bell, you know, who denounced populism all the time and made it his kind of nemesis. uh, It it wasn't clear that Bell knew what it was. Hmm. Okay. Or Edward Schills. Edward Schills wrote a whole book about it, uh, basically blaming populism for McCarthyism. It was a famous book in its time. And it has, he doesn't know what populism was. He just uses the word mm-hmm. and, and thinks it's self-evident that it is r- related to McCarthyism, you know, without ever, you know, trying to prove it, bothering to prove it, et cetera. For that generation of intellectuals, you know, McCarthyism was this, uh, this terrifying moment. And, they decided that it was an ism all of its own, but what ism? And the ism that they decided to uh, attach to it was populism. Uh, and they decided that McCarthyism was just, a, was just an exemplar or a subset of populism. And populism was this larger problem, the, the, the madness of, of uh, mass movements. If you will, mm. uh, and and that's that's where that comes from. So, and they, by the way, they saw this as the antithesis to they themselves. The fifties was really the, the the golden dawn of the professional class in this country. This is when yes. the university system was expanding in mm-hmm. this uh, enormous way. Uh, people with PhDs were taking over all sorts of jobs that used to be done by. But, you know, by other people, mm-hmm. uh, you, you had to have a college degree, you know, that sort of bracket creep began where you had to have a college degree to do this job, to do that job. It was the sort of the great era of the man in the gray flannel suit, the man in the high white collar, etc. Mm-hmm. And th- those writers, the sort of consensus school writers thought of themselves as uh, leaders of that cohort. The sort of triumph of the of the professionals. And they were, you know, they were there to tell you why that was, you know, it was a great age of rationality and they were the most rational ones. And they were here to organize the economy and to organize the military and to run the giant corporation and all the rest of it and to do so in a scientific and professional way. Manner, and so it was really a class coming into awareness of its of its own triumph, and they decided that the the people who opposed them, the people who uh, were their arch their their nemesis, that the word they would apply to those people was populists. So populists were supposed to be they were they represented the the mob, the unthinking, the body versus the mind. You know, mm. and this is where it becomes for me really really interesting. And uh, I should say, you know, to, to take a step back so that your your listeners understand why I know all this and why I care about all this, because they mm-hmm. think of me just right as a guy that, you know, writes mean articles about Republicans and stuff like that. Well, how, how does he know all this? So I studied American history long ago in, in graduate school, and the whole debate over populism was something that we all knew. That we were all very familiar with the literature on it. And I myself decided at some point that I was going to study populism, you know, the uppercase P, this movement in the 1890s. And that was going to be my subject as I went through life. Now, I later changed my mind but I did, uh, read a whole lot of their like newspapers, you mm-hmm. know, I did spent time in the archives in Topeka, uh, reading their old pamphlets and stuff like that. It's, it's not a coincidence that the one state where they really succeeded was, was my home state of Kansas. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Kansas has this populist tradition. And so I, you know, Anyhow, you get it. But so I was very familiar with the, the the Hofstadter and friends debate with other historians over what populism was. What I didn't figure out until years later was that Hofstadter and then all his friends, all his, his cohort, like I said, these guys sort of constructing this grand master narrative of the rise of the professional class. That these people took their critique of populism from the 1890s, mm. by which I mean populism was welcomed into the world as as this is what the Harper story was about. Populism was welcomed into the world with this incredible barrage of hate, mm-hmm. uh, and we we quoted a lot of it in in Har- in the Harper story. But there's a lot more, and uh, I I reprint a bunch of the more vicious political cartoons of the era in mm-hmm. my book, and. Basically, the idea that uh, populism was uh, a movement of, the, of demagogues, of people with mental disorders like paranoia, and they actually accused William Jennings Bryan of being paranoid, right. a movement in which people with mental disorders led the disgruntled, the pointlessly disgruntled, people who had no business being disgruntled. This was all there. This was there in the 1890s. This existed. This is how populism <laughs> came into the world, was under this barrage of of hate and denunciation. And Hofstadter never acknowledged that, that he was just picking up those attacks from the 1890s and sort of re-upping them as his historical... Critique. He never acknowledged that. He never quotes them. He never talks about that. But, you know, it's obvious once you start digging in the historical literature, the anti populism of the period. Can I tell you about one of the finds that uh, there's a lot of things in the book? I don't know if they made it into the Harper's article. A lot of things that I'm very proud of. Some of them did, obviously, make it into the story, but some of them didn't. One of them that didn't is there was a lot of fiction about populism, Hmm. novels, you know, about the movement, novels written by people in the movement. And then there was also anti-populist fiction. I, I was surprised. I did not know that. <laughs> and and the, the, one of the, the best uh, works that I came across was by William Allen White, who was a Kansas newspaper man. He was from Emporia, Kansas, and later in life became a nationally syndicated columnist and was sort of the voice of small town America, uh, a beloved figure. Mm -hmm. But he 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 got his start in journalism in the 1890s denouncing populism on behalf of the local sort of Republican grandees, you know, the people who owned the state, the people Mm -hmm. who had traditionally ruled the state. And he was there. He was their voice. He was their mouthpiece. And he wrote this. He was an excellent writer. I mean really fun to read. I mean that that guy he could kick ass like you know <laughs> like nobody like there's I mean he was amazing. Anyhow, he wrote this novella about politics in Kansas. It's very thinly disguised. He never says it's Kansas, but it mm-hmm. obviously is. And the last chapter of it, which is about a third of the book, is about the populist revolt. And he describes this uh this sort of not a town atheist, but something like that—a town ne'er do well—who, <laughs> uh, because of the economic downturn of the 1890s, somehow comes out on top. And this is the whole theme of it: like the, uh, you know, the world turned upside down—that uh, this guy, who's this this layabout ne'er do well, who stands on street corners griping and grousing all the time somehow becomes leader of the local farmers alliance (laughs) which is the 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 predecessor group to the populace it was a you know a farm organization right and um, And then becomes governor because he gets elected governor of the state. And he describes this in he describes the way the man uh, works his audiences in this in this really uh, compelling way. This is William Allen White I'm talking about here. He describes it as a kind of mass hypnosis. And uh, I thought, well, that's, that's really, and he does it, he does an excellent job describing this. And, uh, you know, he, that's clearly what he sees populism as, as a kind of mass hypnosis as a mania, like something out of the peasants revolts of medieval Europe or something (laughs) like that, in which the unworthy, you know, rise up and overthrow their betters. And that's entirely what it is. It's always what anti-populism is, is the people on top saying, you know, the the, the order, the, you know, our society is the way it is because it's supposed to be that way, that the the rightful order is the rightful order because God is God and right is right, as one of those editorials that I quoted put it. Yeah. And it, it is absolutely fascinating. But that's so there's this consistency about anti-populism from William Allen White and those newspaper editorials that we quoted denouncing William Jennings Bryan from that day up until, you know, the Washington Post this morning. Mm -hmm. attacking Trump voters or Sanders supporters or whatever it is as the rabble. And it is absolutely consistent. And so once this is the great sort of the finding of this book, and it's this is this is extraordinary uh, that this there's this theme that runs through American life like this, this theme of contempt for ordinary people when they get together in mass movements and even when they don't, I mean, I don't think Trump is a populist. There's no, I mean, no. Uh, he has nothing to do with with the sort of 1890s movement, except in a rhetorical way, perhaps. But the reaction to him and the reaction to Bernie Sanders is 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 exactly the same as it was in the 1890s. It's absolutely fascinating.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to ask you, do you feel like there is some sort of deeper connection between the sort of the professional managerial class now versus the people who were on top in the 1890s who were hating on the hayseeds.
1: White collars and brains. William Allen White had a whole bunch of really great ways of putting it, you know, <laughs> and as opposed to the, as he would call it, the lazy, greasy fizzle who can't pay <laughs> his debts. You know, yeah, that's the guy we want to put on top, right? You know, he had all these wonderful images of the world turned upside down it's very similar. And although the, you know, the ideology of the professional class didn't really come together until the 1950s, but it existed in, in miniature in all sorts of ways. What One of the things that fascinates me, this is sort of my larger theory of American life. I don't know if you give a damn about this or if anybody gives a damn about this. It's, it's that there's not one elite in, in America. There's two, there's the business elite and there's the professional elite. And uh, you have some, Industries like banking that have a foot in both, you know, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And I think that's the essential divide between our two parties now. The Republicans speak for this sort of business elite and the Democrats speak for this professional Elite, And that leaves out <laughs> the majority of people, yes. <laughs> yeah, everybody else. <laughs> yeah, right, right. All of us. We're, we, we, and we're just left to sort of fit in with one. and they both make appeals to us, you know, in their way. Mm-hmm. And some big part of ordinary people line up with Republicans and some other big part line up with Democrats. And that's that's your political system in a nutshell. But so in this book, uh, The People Know, by the way, did I tell you that's the title of the book, The People No. As your listeners know, a play on the Carl Sandburg poem from 1936 titled The People, Yes. (laughs) Carl Sandburg was very much a populist with a lowercase p. He really, like many authors in that period, was in love with ordinary people, mass movements, that sort of thing. Um, But anyhow, to get back to our story, in the beginning, anti-populism brings these groups together so the business class the professional class which was just in utero at that point was just starting to come into its own at that point all of these people together and there was a real aristocratic element to it mm-hmm. you know if you go back and look at the magazines and newspapers that denounced populism they they also they loved the robber barons they loved you know european aristocrats you know uh, men of good taste <laughs> you know all, the, all that all that bullshit they loved that <laughs> and that's and that's on whose behalf they denounced populism a lot of these people really disliked democracy too i mean let's just be real blunt about it they they didn't really believe in democracy a lot of them once had believed in it like around the time of the civil war but by the 1890s there was a real fear in america of class war that class war was coming And class war, they thought that's the ultimate expression of democracy. That's what happens when you let everybody vote, Mm -hmm. you know, and you just let everybody have their say and you just have, you know, the people running wild in the streets. The next thing is, is class war and people saw populism as class war. That's what they thought it was. And so there was a real aristocratic element to it. Now that sort of drops off later. Oh, by the way, so there's a second um, great, anti-populist episode, which is in the 1930s. And I trace the the people who hated Franklin Roosevelt in the uh, early years of the New Deal. These people are fascinating. And again, it had a very aristocratic, big business element to it. And it also had a fascist Element yeah. to it, people who believed in people who believed in eugenics,
0: right? And Father Coughlin uh, the, and all those sorts of. yeah. Well, he's
1: he's not part of the story because uh, he, I would put him in a different category of a kind of pseudo populist, hmm. where he would use a lot of populist language, but for I mean, a fascist is the right term for him, because he used a lot of populist language, but for these really evil ends you know mm. not for the same ends as as the original populist he is a you know utter demagogue but your your full-blown anti-populist were the ones who hated roosevelt I, I think of roosevelt as the great as the true populist of that of that era i mean roosevelt deliberately echoed a lot of um, populist language used a lot of populist issues took america off the gold standard for god's sakes mm-hmm. I mean, you know did all those things and uh the the reaction to him in 1936 was was almost a note for note cover version of what had happened in 1896 mm-hmm. and it was again it was big business mainly the newspaper owners uh the dupont family they had a front group the original right wing front group it was called the american liberty league they had more money than the republican party and they uh they they <sighs> they, they went on this uh, incredible attack on franklin roosevelt that is uh, when you go back and read their literature it is absolutely fascinating because they dabble in racism they dabble in eugenics they dabble in all these different things but it's again this theme of society's rightful rulers have been displaced by people with no business people who have who are who are trying to reach above their station uh, and that's how they mm. saw Roosevelt and the and the New Deal, and that's they made fun of them in in almost exactly those terms. And there was a large element of the professional class in that one, especially um, eminent lawyers, eminent lawyers, and eminent mm. economists were uh, sort of leading the charge against the New Deal in those days. And then you you go forward to the 50s and then to the 60s, 70s in our own time, and it becomes, uh, anti-populism becomes almost entirely a movement of the professional class. Because along the way, the right wing picks up populist language and indeed starts calling itself populist uh, beginning in the, like the mm. 1980s. Absolutely fascinating. Ronald Reagan, uh, his advisors always referred to him as a populist, George Bush Sr., he had this advisor called Lee Atwater, one of the sort of great villains of, America, right. of American political history. Yes. And he uh, Atwater yes. thought that he was a populist. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Richard Vigory, who was a, one of the leaders of what was called the New Right in the 1980s, wrote a whole book about populism. Mm-hmm. And then right down to the present day, Steve Bannon, you know, Pat Buchanan and Steve Bannon, this, this whole bunch.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of the present day, I I wanted to get to Bernie Sanders because I I will just say that the suspension of Sanders' campaign wasn't necessarily a surprise, but it was a major disappointment to those on the left who actually care about electoral politics and some who don't even care that much about him. I mean, there hasn't been a sense of true closure precisely because we are living through a pandemic where three thousand people are dying in this country every day, and we're—I mean—we're not getting any real sense of mourning about that either. But I guess what should people who are disillusioned with the Democratic Party keep in mind right now?
1: Well, you're also you're you're skipping the biggest irony of them all—that Sanders was really. Uh... For the last four years, has been one of the most popular politicians in America, and there are lots of de- yes. lots of Democrats who are mimicking his language, uh, including yes. in the debates last fall, and including in in the primaries. It was all it was all over the place. The, the guy who got the nomination was the only one of them who wasn't doing that.
0: <laughs> yes, because he was barely speaking at all. But yes, yes,
1: and and, and so the, the the irony of. You know, Sanders dropping out and then Sanders politics being immediately vindicated, you know, Medicare for all, et cetera, being immediately vindicated by this awful development. I mean, that's just that's like that's almost too much to take. Yeah, that's uh, it's 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 very depressing. And, uh, you know, look, Biden is a huge Biden is a disappointment. I think he can beat Trump just because, I mean, (laughs) You saw the unemployment report today, you know, mm-hmm. people, how many Americans have died from this pandemic. It's just hard to imagine a man getting reelected in those, these kinds of circumstances. Right. And I also know that Biden, when he was vice president, had some good advisors, some good people around him. So, you know, I, I sometimes try to think on the bright side, but mm-hmm. as soon as I do, I catch myself by saying... I thought I thought that about Obama, too. Yeah. I remember when Obama was elected and I was meeting with a friend of mine here in D.C. And, you know, he, he was saying, you know, we were saying, look, Obama isn't really committed to any of the things that that we believe in. But my friend said it, it doesn't really matter because events are going to force his hand. He's going to have to be Roosevelt because he has no choice in this economic situation. Remember the financial crisis? Well. Obama found a way. <laughs> yes. And so I, 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 I say to myself, you know, I'll be out working in the yard or something, you know, worrying about this stuff. And I'll say, well, Biden, you know, events are going to force his hand as president and he's going to have to embrace Medicare for all. And he's going to have to to undertake these reforms and then I catch myself, <laughs> I, said this, I said the same exact thing, you know, yeah. 12 years ago. Yeah. Anyhow, I, I'm too old for this stuff. <laughs> I'm too old for this stuff. I've just had, I've had enough, you know, it's like, it, I don't know how much of a, how long anybody can be expected to write about these things. Um, yeah.
0: But we still, I mean, a, another way to look on the bright side of things is that Sanders mobilized so many people all over the country. And, you know, were able to get, you know, the first caucus in Iowa, you know, where meatpacking workers, they resoundingly voted for Sanders. So that not only was there this giant movement, but they were actually able to tap into working class people's interests. So what what could or should happen to his movement? Who could or should mobilize that group and to what purpose?
1: Well... I don't have a I don't have a lot of hopes about that anymore. I I'm I'm very I'm very I'm like you I'm very disappointed with how the democratic primaries played out. One really important thing about Bernie Sanders is that he understood the power of social movements. Mm-hmm. Uh it's not clear to me that any of the other democrats do. They have been actively subverting the main social movement that made the democratic party what it is, which by which I mean organized labor. They've been actively subverting that movement for decades, yeah. you know, destroying the thing that made their own party possible. Uh, Sanders understood that you had to go in the other direction and build a movement. I don't know if building it around a, a, an individual politician is the way to go. I, yeah, I, that's the well, problem. It obviously, it obviously is not. Yeah. And I also don't know if you can do it outside of other concerns. I mean, the way movements are typically built is by bringing people together around some shared experience shared understanding of the world, you know, labor again is the perfect example, or the farmers alliance in the 1890s, you know, these were mass movements on an enormous scale that ultimately got their way. And there's no doubt in my mind that we need something like that today. I just, you know, where the hell is it? Where is the mass movement for our time? So I just finished writing a book about the 1890s and the 1930s. And I'm, you know, I look at those periods and Are we ever going to have that kind of, uh, you know, the closest I've ever seen, well, obviously there's the anti-Vietnam War movement in Mm -hmm. the 60s, which came close. And there was the Women's March, the day after Trump's inauguration. That was very impressive.
0: But apolitical. But I mean, it was, I wouldn't say apolitical, but there were no specific demands that women were marching for. Right.
1: Right. That's right. And, it, you know, it had its flaws and the anti-war movement in the 60s had enormous flaws as well. I yeah. go into that in some some detail in the book. You know, the whole new left uh, had you know, terrible things wrong with it. But in the beginning, it was uh, it was a, dis- a distinctly populist effort. By the way, I, they, we skipped over that the, in the the civil rights movement in the in the early 60s. Had very had used very populist language, and in some ways deliberately so, deliberately echoing back to the past. Very interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, there were definitely, you know, the Black Panthers did started free lunch programs, so they were trying to, you know, construct something parallel, this parallel system to address these things that the rest of society was not interested in doing. You know, obviously, the focus on electoral politics is part of that problem you know thinking back to 08 with Obama you know he had this huge grassroots network that they just broke up yeah they cut it off and they could have done a lot of different things with it and they chose not to because the goal had been met so that's why I'm curious to see what you would say about where should the Sanders movement go next and like can it divorce itself from Bernie Sanders
1: God, I don't know. I I I don't think it can at this point. I mean, he'll have to, you know. I wouldn't be surprised if if Sanders, uh, you know, more or less sort of retired after this debacle. Yeah, but they ha- they have to do something. And uh, you know, another another angle is third party movements. Populism obviously was a third party. Um, we haven't seen any really. Vital third-party movements since then. I mean, there's people have tried here and there, but nothing on a mass scale like you saw in the 1890s. I don't. I don't know who uh, how how to how to lead. But more, what's more important is than the leadership is how to organize it. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the principles that should be organized around? How do you keep people interested? How do you grow it? And look, there is no doubt in my mind that young people and working people are absolutely furious. And I would include college educated people in this now. That's one of the reasons I don't want to brush them off as just part of the professional class, because a lot of them are discovering that thanks to student debt, thanks to the sort of the bracket creep that I described earlier, that Mm -hmm. they are are the proletariat of today. And uh, it's a really rude awakening. But- there is so much anger and discontent out there it there's got to be a way to build on it build something
0: yeah cuz i mean you know obviously it's very hard to organize right now because you can't go out yep. and knock on doors or no physically. of course yeah. of course and there's actually if you if you do a google search for populism and the coronavirus there's a recent wave of articles all making predictions about how the virus we will either hurt or help populism so probably not the
1: yeah, but they're they're using about. the yes yes <laughs> they're using the degraded incorrect definition in my in my opinion there has never been a more uh, you know obvious demonstration of the need for a populist system. What, just ask yourself what would a, what what would a populist medical system look like? It it would it would be a system that you know where everybody got healthcare. Right. You know that's what it would be. Yes.
0: No. I just wanted to ask like, do you think that the coronavirus will ultimately help anti Democratic leaders and false populists, people like Trump, but maybe not Trump.
1: Well, I've been saying all my all my adult life that I used to call it right wing populism, but I don't think that's uh, accurate. This sort of right wing pseudo populism. You know, this is what, what's the matter with Kansas was about. This is what I, I've been writing about this all my life. This kind of fake populism that you see in the Republican Party and that you see in these, these sort of European neo fascists. Mm hmm this thing is powerful. And I haven't seen the, because we have destroyed mass movements and the possibility of third parties, there's only one group with the potential of stopping them. And that's the Democrats and the Democrats absolutely and utterly refuse to take the steps required to stop them. So whether, whether Trump is defeated this year or not, Mm -hmm. uh, his, his brand of politics is going to continue. Of, Of course it is. There's no, Question, but that it is. Uh, look what he did in 2016. He won Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, and Ohio. The, yeah. Those are the new battleground states. You know, 20 years ago, the, the battleground states were like North Carolina and Florida. So, well, that's all in their pocket now. Yeah, you know, and it, 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 of course they're going to continue in that vein. Of course they are. There's no question about it. But l- define what that vein is, and and you begin to understand. Trump is what allowed him to succeed was again something that I've written about in Harper's magazine you know years ago what allowed him to succeed or I should say one of the the factors that allowed him to succeed and allowed Bush before him and allowed Reagan before him to succeed was this uh, outreach to disgruntled working class people particularly mm-hmm. white working class people you know none of these Right-wing populists have had much success with <laughs> with black working-class voters, although they often claim that that's their next move, but it never somehow it never materializes. But this outreach to disgruntled white working-class people, and it has been going on all my life since the late 1960s. It starts with Nixon. Nixon was was very strategic about it and talked about it openly. This is what we're going to do. They have they wrote books about it. Uh, Reagan picked up from there, uh, Bush from there, and Trump from there. Trump is part of a of a continuum he's not this outlying you know this strange outlying thing i mean he is right. strange and he's weird and he's a blabbermouth and a liar and etc 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 and a bigot but he's he's not an outlier in republican politics and this strategy has been overwhelmingly successful for these guys this party has moved way to the right and has won the votes of all sorts of down at the heels people while doing so it's an incredible strategy now now that I've laid it out for you, can you think of how the Democratic Party <laughs> might stop them? <laughs> the answer is really easy. What if they stopped those white working class voters from, uh, you know, from migrating to the Republicans? What if they did that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just reclaim the base. <laughs> I spoke exactly. I've spoken to many Democratic groups and and individuals, and and you say that, and they're like, "Well, what what could we do? What could we do? What could <laughs> Violet ask you? What could a left party in a system do to appeal to working class people?" It is like fucking mysterious to American liberal politicians. Like they can't figure that one out. Right, I know. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it drive you crazy? Yeah. <laughs> it's like there's a there's a whole industry here in Washington, like you can make a career out of muddling that question and insisting that there is no conceivable answer that there's no and that it can't be done, et cetera, et cetera. You you get paid top dollar for it if you if that's your line yeah. in life.
0: No, and yeah, I mean the consultant uh culture of the Democratic Party is also a huge problem. Yeah.
1: Journalism, political science, yes. all that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the name of the game. By the way, we skipped a step here when you and I were talking about populist healthcare and what what that would look like. You know, uh, healthcare wasn't a big issue in the 1890s because it wasn't outrageously expensive, right? And it wasn't a big issue in the 1930s for the same reason. But then at some point, it started to become. Very expensive, and unions and whatnot came up with their plans for how to deal with it. And in 1948, Harry Truman, who was had a sort of populist streak to him, proposed a universal health care program. You know, a single payer program. Mm-hmm. And um, do you know who defeated it? It was the AMA. It was the American Medical Association, the professional association of, of, of doctors. Uh, and the AMA defeated every effort to build a national healthcare system up until Obamacare. And so the, you know, the sort of professional ideal was very much opposed to universal healthcare. I mean, has always been. And uh, today that's a little bit modified because professionals really like Obamacare. (laughs) You know, it guarantees into certain industries profits. It doesn't, question big pharma etc 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 but uh the 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 main group that destroyed the potential for universal healthcare in america was was in some ways our leading professional association the most powerful most famous i guess after the bar association the but the ama is well anyhow they were a big deal at the time so so there's my there's my class conflict again <laughs>
0: I know it's everywhere
1: because it's real. It is. It is. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and sometimes I think, you know, I, like I said, I studied history and I, and I was like, hey, social class, this is really interesting. And you, you, you quickly figure out that social class is really important, you know, and you write about it and et cetera. And then you discover something else out, which is that you're not allowed to talk about that in America. Right. That, that, is, that, that makes people really uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, even if you talk about it in the most clinical way. The most scholarly way, it makes people upset. They don't want to hear it.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I wanted to actually, I wanted to get into something. I mean, because you did a lot of writing for Harper's about the Tea Party movement. And it's it's interesting to go back and revisit that writing. Or even when you reported from Wisconsin, when Scott Walker was trying to kill a union's right to be a union. Yes.
1: That's I'll never forget that. Yeah. That was that was incredible, yeah. and and Walker largely got his way. It still yeah. boggles the mind that he was able to pull that off. Do you remember the guy interviewed in that story? It was a local. It was a a state, a, you know, member of the state legislature, a very conservative member of the state legislature. I'm blanking on his name now. He's in Congress now. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> of course, of course,
0: yes. Speaking of Republican state politicians and ones that are actively putting their constituents in danger, a lot of Republican state governors are lifting the shelter-in-place orders despite a lack of testing and the rise of cases. And obviously, Trump is very, very eager to reopen the country. So it seems like the fake populists of the American right are taking their masks off and showing how expendable the lives of everyday Americans are to them compared to the interests of industry. Do you think that people who have felt spoken to by the Trump movement in the last election will have a harder time now buying the idea that these people have their interests in mind? Or for those who are out protesting stay at home orders, are those protests astroturfed or for complicated reasons, do these people not care about the danger and want to go back to work?
1: Well, I, so I haven't been to any of, remember, I went to a bunch of the Tea Party protests. Mm -hmm. I haven't been to any of these, obviously. And I, and I would uh, seriously question how, uh, how how deep these things go. I mean, you know, I went to the very, I have the distinction among American journalists of, of having gone to the very first Tea Party protest. It was in 2009. It was in the park in front of the White House. I was a columnist at the Wall Street Journal at the time, and I wrote about it and I made fun of it. I I sort of brushed it off as a humorous episode. And uh, it was clearly not a, not a put on. I mean, there really were people there, but it had been organized among, you know, you, you just, your usual suspects on the right, you know, people from protest groups from Northern Virginia, people from certain lobby shops, you know, there were a lot of really well-dressed guys there, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) their their ties and stuff like that. And what I didn't see coming is that it caught on, it would catch on and would become sort of quasi legitimate, you know, And uh, that this is, you know, clearly being started in the same way. I don't know where this will go. I think people are really scared. Now you asked, look, the the results of this election in 2020 are totally up in the air at this point. I I don't see how Biden does worse than Hillary did. You know, look at the the economy is in is in is in ruins. People are furious. People are having relatives die. It's people are angry in all sorts of ways. I it's, I don't see how, uh, I mean, look, it's, it's early yet. Biden has made all sorts of mistakes already. Uh, he's already, you know, look at the hypocrisy thing on the,
0: you know, on
1: the, the, on the Yep. On the me too angle. This is the Republicans are going to ride that for all it's worth. He's, he's going to be weak in some ways, but you got to also remember one of the things that contributed to Hillary's defeat in 16 is that they had been pounding her for 20 years. Exactly. Rush Limbaugh had been making fun of her since 1992. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, the Democrats just walked right into that one, you know, without taking any precautions. Biden is, let's put it this way. He's a much less hated figure uh, than Hillary was. I think Hillary would have, I mean, this doesn't matter. This isn't important. She'd be a better president. But uh, who the hell knows? Violet, who the hell knows? I don't know the answer to that.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, I think that's a good place to end on. (laughs) Who the hell knows?
1: (laughs) Can I say one last thing? And that is, we didn't get to the part of the book that's going to be controversial. Oh. Here's what the book uh, the the great the big claim that the book makes, and that is that anti populism changes sides. Anti populism goes from being a uh, aristocratic, quasi fascist phenomenon in the eighteen nineties and the nineteen thirties to being a liberal phenomenon in the present day. The anti-populism today is largely found among uh, liberal Democrats and professional class, mm-hmm. um, not Bernie supporters. I mean, more mainstream Democrats, journalists, that, that kind of thing. And so this, this sensibility that I trace the history of from the 1890s to the present changes sides and does so in a really striking manner. I mean, there there are uh, incredible similarities from the eighteen nineties to the present, uh, and they're they're ugly. Yeah. Anyhow, you'll see. Yes. <laughs> and that's that. Violet is going to be controversial.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, for the people who have to accept that they've been led down the wrong path, I think it will be controversial, and of course because. The One of the main smears that is used against white working class people or, you know, subsuming white working class to just mean working class people where that little switcheroo happens. And then if you say working class people, they someone will be like, oh, no, you're talking about white working class people and you have problems with yeah. race and you're not approaching this from an intersectional angle because there there will be people who are going to say. We can't work with these people because they are opposed to gay marriage. They are opposed to treating black people and immigrants like human beings. And they are, are their, their interests are fundamentally different from ours. And what would you say to someone who has that
1: objection? Well, first of all, they've had that objection since Richard Hofstadter in the 1950s. And Hofstadter was famously wrong. They had that objection again in the '60s and '70s, and it led to the triumph of Richard Nixon. This is famously what the McGovern movement was all about—you know, it was kicking the unions out of the Democratic Party. And uh, the, the 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 answer to that is that the the way the only way to build a really triumphant movement of the left is to bring together working class people of all different races in a common struggle but over shared concerns. And that's, by the way, that's my definition of populism. And uh, that's what you saw in the Farmers Alliance, which was for its day, it tried to be transracial. They didn't really succeed, but they, at least in the beginning, that's what they wanted to be. And that's certainly what the New Deal coalition was. right? And that's what the labor movement tries to be. And that's what you have to have. That has to be the aspiration if you want to build a functioning, successful, triumphant movement of the left. That's what they've always been. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you decide at the beginning that you're going to close yourself off to a big part of the working class, then you're not going to have that. You're going to have something else. And what you're going to have is the Democratic Party of today, which simply doesn't deliver on, you know, it's really good for certain kinds of billionaires, but for you and me, Nothing. Yeah. Or very, very little, I should say.
0: Right. Well, on that hopeful note.
1: <laughs> that <laughs> <end>. <laughs> well, hey, I mean wait, wait. You want to make this hopeful? Bernie Sanders says it's the same thing that I'm saying. He says it all the time that you that's what it you is have true. to do. Yeah. You have to build a transracial movement of working people. It's, yeah. that's just like to him that's obvious. And I think to his followers that's obvious. And he is an that is a not insignificant chunk of the American electorate. There's a way to build on this. I mean, this is not a, what I just said to you is not strange or shocking or surprising or, no. or odd. No. Anybody that studies history knows it's true. And uh, there's a, there's millions of people out there in this country that know it's true. And we're, and God damn it, we're just getting started. How do you like that, Violet? That's
0: very good. Yes. (laughs) Get out there. Well, no, don't go. Don't get out there. Wait until it's safe and then get out there and then start organizing. And yes, yes, it'll be okay. It'll be okay if we try. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. This was excellent. You got it. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is "Cut and Shoot" by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for 21.97, visit harpers.org/save.